The scripture reading this morning is taken from Matthew 2, 1 to 12, and this is what it says. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by, by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You may be seated. Good morning, Christ. My name's Brant Van Rolkel. It's a mouthful, I know. It's been a mouthful my whole life long. I am from the Kitts uh, Neighborhood Church. I'm the Director of Ministry Development and Care in the Kitts Neighborhood Church. And it's my joy to be with you today to bring you the Word of God. It's a real pleasure to be here. I, I was here once. I don't know if uh, I see some familiar faces, maybe. And I was here once in August. I uh, was able to, to bring the word then as well and really enjoy being with you. And it's, it's been something I've been looking forward to coming back ever since. So I'm glad to be here with you. Um, actually, my office is downstairs, so I'm here all the time. I'm here throughout the week, but I never get to be up here when people are in the room. Uh, so this is a real blessing for me. It's a real joy. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm glad to be here. And as we begin, I just would ask that you would, uh, you'd pray with me. We can ask the Lord's help in this. Father, we, we come before you. Uh, with great joy, we're just thankful that you are a God who took on human flesh to come to earth in humility, to suffer and to die, and to be raised to life that we might be saved. Father, I ask that you would work by your Holy Spirit right now to be pressing in on our hearts, to help us to see and to savor and to understand and to know that Jesus is God, that he is good, that he's beautiful and worthy of all of our worship. Help us to submit to him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this Advent season, we're taking some time together to walk through the first couple chapters of Matthew, or Matthew chapters 1 and 2. Matthew's just one of the gospel stories about Jesus in the first part of the New Testament. And we're looking at these chapters, we're looking at the traditional Christian stories, but I know that there might be some of you in this room that genuinely wonder, hey Brent, what's the deal? Why 
at this time of year, when conflict is all around, when foreign diplomats are being held in China and my personal life is falling apart and and I'm spending more than I should be and the payment's coming in January, why are we looking at this text? I mean, I'm going to have to spend a whole day with my in-laws pretty soon. I mean, how, how how does this text, how does it help me? How does it speak to where I'm at? Maybe you hear the word Christmas and you just see problems and unrest and murder and hatred, and you feel more in line with the words of Bono, the lead singer of U2, and his song, Peace on Earth, than you do with Silent Night. And Bono said this. He said, said, Jesus, in the song you wrote, the words are sticking in my throat. Peace on earth. Hear it every Christmas time, but hope and history won't rhyme. So what's it worth, this peace on earth? I mean, is, is peace on earth a discordant melody that Christians sing completely tone deaf to what's happening in the world around them? Are we just a bunch of weirdos as we, we have this hope and this joy and this winsome affection for Jesus Christ? What's that about? What's going on? Does it, does it matter at all? Does Christmas matter? Do these first two chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, do they matter for us? Well, I'm excited to be with you this morning because I want to share my testimony, share from the words of Scripture, the way that that me and so many other Christians for 2,000 years have been radically convinced and affected and shown that, that Jesus matters, that his arrival matters maybe more than anything. Why? Because it's during this season of Advent, these four weeks of this season of celebration of Jesus' arrival, as you look at these passages of Scripture, that we're reminded That God has come. We're reminded that God has come to establish his reign on earth. That's what we see at Christmas time. But we do know that there is a bitter sweetness to Advent, don't we? Because it's often at Christmas time, in the, the chaos and all these events, this time we're supposed to be happy that we are just right up against the reality that, you know what? Peace on earth isn't fully here yet. And I see that right now. I feel that right now. I'm confronted with that right now. Jesus has come, but I'm still hoping in him coming again to bring that peace on earth in its fullness. And it's not here in its fullness today. But even though perfect peace in its fullness hasn't arrived yet, Christmas matters like crazy for all of us. Because it's only here in these Christmas stories that hope dawns for the first time, that spring awakens in the bleak midwinter of humanity's sin and suffering as Jesus comes to earth. For the first time, God's come, the king of love in the midst of our suffering and pain to peel back the darkness of this world, to plant the seed of his kingdom that's been growing for 2,000 years and it will continue growing until he returns. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas time. And that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That sound good to you this morning? That sounds good to me this morning. But here's the problem. As we live between the two advents, the first and the second coming of Jesus, we're in this period where, where Jesus' rule and, and my rule are in conflict. And this conflict exists because of this. I don't know if you've ever gone to the, uh, the local um, throne dealership here in Vancouver. But if you do go to the throne dealership, 
you'll notice that every throne is a single seater. And you'll realize that, that for Jesus to be elevated on the throne, you have to get off. You have to get off. And ever since Jesus' first advent, we've been faced with a choice. Will we give Jesus the throne? Will we experience the joy of his kingdom? Or will we fight tooth and nail to try to keep our reign to ourselves and resist him? You know, the arrival of Jesus and these sorts of responses and several different responses are exactly what our passage is about this morning. After Matthew has shown us that Jesus has arrived in the first chapter of the book and the, the sermon that Jake preached last week, we see now in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, that even as a child, Jesus provokes incredible responses because he's a king, because he's come to rule. So this morning, as we look at this passage, we'll first take a little time to just unpack what's going on, unpack the context, look at uh, what's happening in, in, this, in this section. And then we're going to look at three responses to Jesus as king. We're going to look at the response of Herod to Jesus as king. We're going to look at the response of the people to Jesus as king. And we're going to look at the response of the wise men to Jesus as king. So let's start with a little bit of context. Look at verses 1 to 2 with me as we begin unpacking the story. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So did you see the setting that Matthew alerts us to in this text? Did you see when this event occurs? It's during the days of Herod the king. And for you history buffs, this is important because it's the first time stamp that we have in the book of Matthew. That shows us, relatively speaking, where this story lines up with secular human history. Where does it line up? And this is an important reality for us to contend with, to look at it's in the days of Herod the king, because we live in Vancouver, right? You might have gone to the Christmas market. You might have been at Granville Island. You might have seen a nativity set, set up in this beautiful festive area with the lights and the beauty. And you might be tempted to think that the arrival of Jesus happened in a time that's like today. You might impose your 2018 Vancouver festivities and joy on what was going on at Jesus' time. But that's not the case. This happened in the days of Herod the king. And Herod, to be clear, he wasn't a good guy. He wasn't a good guy. The average Jew hated him. Why? Well, first of all, Herod was an, an imposter. He was an Idumean. He was a descendant of the Edomites, the ancient peoples that you can read about in the first half of the Bible. He wasn't Jewish, Jewish, and he'd usurped the throne through political intrigue and through some backroom deals. So in a day previous to his kingship, there was some conflict, and he escaped some conflict and got in a ship and hung out with his buddy Octavian, who later became Caesar Augustus in Rome. And then Caesar Augustus said, you know what we're going to do, Herod? I'm going to give you an army, and you can go back to Judea, and we're going we're to rule through you. We'll give you the kingdom. We'll give you an army. Go and take it. So Herod goes back, and he takes Judea by force, takes the throne by force. I don't know if you've noticed this, but whenever someone takes control of something in kind of a shady, illegitimate way, it makes them jumpy. Have you seen that? Have you watched a mafia movie or two? You've seen the gang shows, right? And these guys, they're not people that sleep easily at nighttime because they're worried that what they've done to other people is going to happen to them. They're worried that they're going to wake up and the horse's head's going to be underneath the sheets, right? They're concerned. 
And Herod, likewise, was a jumpy guy. Caesar Augustus, who had given Herod his throne and his army to get it with, he'd even said this about Herod. I love this. He said, I would rather be his pig than his son. And I'm going to get really nerdy on you. It's a, it's a Greek pun. He said, I would rather be his hus than his huios. So I want to be his pig than his son. Why was that? Well, because Herod, because he was pretending to be Jewish, he, would, he wouldn't eat pork. Right? So pigs are safe. But because he is so murderous, his sons aren't safe. And when the plot comes to him or he's worried about a plot, he has no problem killing one of his children to preserve his throne. He's kosher, but he's also a killer. And when Herod realizes in the verses following our passage this morning that he's missed Jesus, he's gone now, that he, his plots didn't work out, he has no problem saying, you know what, give the order. Uh, two years old and under, every little boy in Bethlehem and around, we're going to kill them all. We're going to try and catch Jesus in the big net. This is the kind of guy that Herod is. So when we read in the days of Herod the king, it reminds us that the Bible story of salvation through the arrival of Jesus Christ and his kingdom, it's not like your upcoming vacation. It's not desired, but unnecessary. Even though I know you might sell it to your employer as necessary for mental health reasons or something like that. But it's not like that. The coming of Jesus and his salvation on the stage of world history is crucial. And it's desperately needed and even longed for. So we might ask, who then is Jesus? Why does his arrival matter? Well, in the verses that come immediately before this, Jake showed us last week a few things about Jesus and his reign. A few things about Jesus as he's born the king in Matthew chapter 1. And he showed us that Jesus really is the beginning of a dawn of a new creation. And we see that on Jesus' own lips in the book of Revelation when he says in Revelation 21 verse 5, Behold, I am making all things new. It's begun with Jesus' arrival. And we, we saw also that, that Jesus' arrival is the beginning of the presence of God. We saw that in Matthew 1.23 when Jake preached last week. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I don't know if you know the words of the hymn, but some of my favorite words in the hymns are, are these words. Clothed in flesh, the Godhead three, hail the incarnate deity. It's Jesus. God come to make himself known to us, to dwell among us, that we might see who he is. But he's also the salvation of our sins. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 says that. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So we see this new creation in Jesus. We see God's presence in Jesus. We see salvation of our sins in Jesus. And what we need to recognize, though, is that all of these things can be subsumed under the reality of Jesus' kingship. It's because he is the king of the universe that he can do these things, that he does these things. He's the arrival of our perfect king that we desperately need. And in fact, Jesus' kingship was so significant that somehow it was recognized by a bunch of non-Jewish wise men. Look at verses 1 to 2 again. We'll pick up partway through. Behold... Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. So who were these wise men? 
And does this song, We Three Kings, really help us understand who they were? You know the one, right? We three kings of Orient are... Some of you are pretty worried I'm going to keep singing the whole thing. (laughs) The song's not that helpful, I'm sorry to say it. And it's not helpful because we don't know that there were three. It doesn't give us a number. Three traditionally came from the three gifts, actually. That's where the number came from. Um, And they weren't kings. They weren't kings. They were magi. That's the word that's translated wise men in our text. And they were, in fact, from the east. And magi in this ancient Eastern culture, they were the kind of people that ancient kings relied upon to give them counsel. They were the torchbearers of this ancient and sacred wisdom. They knew all the ancient texts. They had practiced divination. They had studied the stars. They were the philosophers of the age. And every king worth their salt, they had a bunch of these guys in their back pocket that they could call up and they could rely upon when they wanted to see what was happening in this world and wanted to interpret events. But the question for us, I think, is, okay, that being the case, how did they hear about Jesus? Wouldn't that be a good question? How how did they know anything about Jesus? Why did they seek for him? And I think it's important to remember the geography in our minds a little bit here to try and think of it. I'll explain it to you. But these guys are from the east. They're from the places where Assyria and Babylon and Persia were, where where the Jews had been exiled to. So in the first half of the Bible, it ends with this climatic, terrible event, and the Jews are, are sent out, and they're in exile out in these places. And their culture and their teaching is being disseminated all in that area as they live amongst these Eastern peoples. So it's not at all surprising, I don't think, or, or um, unreasonable to imagine that these guys, they would have had access to the Jewish Bible or would have known something of the Jewish Bible. And alongside, I think, their understanding of some of the Bible even, you know, looking at these prophecies, thinking about these things, about who Jesus might be, who this king is coming, God worked a miracle. And they saw a star in some miraculous way, and they followed it. And they put two and two together, and they thought, we need to be pursuing this king. We need to look for him. So I don't know if you're like me, but when I think about these kinds of things, I start to get curious. What text do you think they could have been looking at? What passages of Scripture might they have had on their minds that would have led them to leave their homes and their comfort and look for Jesus? Well, I don't know, but maybe it was Isaiah 9, verses 2 to 7. Maybe it was this passage about a king who would come who would end war and oppression, who would rule justly and who would bring lasting peace. Look at it with me. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice 
and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I mean, wow, what a text. What a text. What a promised ruler. Maybe you can imagine these wise men on the camel back through the desert, flipping over the pages of scripture, these ancient texts, and dreaming of Jesus. Dreaming of this king who was promised and who would start to end the conflict that they knew so well in the world that they lived in. Would you long for Jesus like they did? Do you long for him like they did? I don't know about you, but peace, order, and good government, that's something in our charter, but I don't think we see it very often in Canada or in this world. We need this king today still. These magi, they'd, they'd heard the whispers of an ancient people through their ancient texts, and they'd interpreted the signs correctly, and they came to see Jesus. But we need to realize that even the arrival of the Prince of Peace is disruptive. Because whenever a new ruler enters the arena, the existing power structures, the existing authorities, they're challenged. And there's a struggle for dominance. And I know that in our lives in Vancouver in 2018, power structures and struggles for dominance aren't exactly the, the, the topics of great images of peace. But I want to expose something here because I think that we tend as human beings to look at authority and leadership and rule suspiciously. I think we tend to see those things as the cause of the problems in our world. <clears throat> but that's not true. <clears throat> that's not what the Bible teaches. Authority and rule and leadership, they're not the problems. The sin of the people who hold those things in their hands, that's the problem. But how would you respond if the God who the Bible says is love takes on human flesh and comes and dwells with us? That's who Jesus is. He's the king of the universe born in a manger. He's the king of the universe, completely God, completely human, perfectly and eternally happy, living eternally with Father and Spirit in love, come down in human flesh in compassion and mercy to save sinners like you and I. Saving us, not as a God who is distant, but as a Savior who is alongside us. Look at the words of theologian Donald McLeod and the way he talks about the incarnation. This makes you want to worship. Jesus lived his incarnate life experiencing pain, poverty, and temptation. Witnessing squalor and brutality. Hearing obscenities and profanities and the hopeless cry of the oppressed. He lived not in sublime detachment or in ascetic isolation, but with us as a fellow man of all men. Crowded, busy, harassed, Stressed, maybe like some of you right now, and molested. No large estate gave him space. No financial capital guaranteed his daily bread. No personal staff protected him from the interruptions. And no power or influence protected him from injustice. He saved us from alongside us. You'd think that that sort of king would be with, worth rejoicing over. But you know what the human heart does with Jesus' rule? It resists it. Look at our second point to see this and how Herod responds to Jesus. Read verses 3 to 8. 
When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Look at Herod's reaction. The perfect king of the universe is born to fix all that is broken in this world. And what happens to Herod? How does he respond? He's troubled. He's troubled that Jesus has come. So he starts plotting. And after hearing the prophecy about Bethlehem, the place of Jesus' birth, Herod summons these wise men and he sends them out to try to use them on his own secret seek and destroy mission. And I think you can just hear, we're going to read verse 8 again, but I think you can just hear like the honey and the, the, the flattery and the, the lying sweetness just dripping off of his lips. Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. It's sinister. This is a sinister verse in the Bible. Because we know that Herod didn't want to worship Jesus. He wanted to murder Jesus. But before you get, before, before you look at this text, before you get all judgy with Herod, and we can do that, right? We're not like that guy. I want to ask you a question. Is it possible that Herod's reaction to Jesus isn't so different from our own? It's not different than my reaction to Jesus. It's not different from my reaction to Jesus this week. This morning we have something special. I've got sin and tell for you this morning. So the sin and tell this morning is that <clears throat> this week my son hasn't been sleeping. He's two years old. And, and two in the morning feels in our house right now like World War III is happening. Right? The bombs are going off. The neighbors have all moved out, taking refuge in other places, left us the keys to their apartments. It's great. Lots of space. But if you talk to my wife, she'd tell you that if you want to see Brant angry, get between him and his sleep. Wake him up from a nap. So here I am. It's been a week or two of this, and I'm not sleeping well. And then I decide to bring up a topic with my wife that I shouldn't have. And, and I lean into it in a way that I really shouldn't have. And, and it starts a conflict. And I'm getting angry at my wife. I'm, I'm really, really mad. And I go to bed angry. I wake up a few times at nighttime, angry. I wake up in the morning, angry. Do I want to, in that moment, take my sin and bring it to Jesus? No, I want to hang on to my anger. Do I want to come to the King of Kings who took on human flesh, who understands my temptation with anger, understands my struggle, and seek his help to put my sin to death? No, I don't want to do that. Do I want to come to King Jesus who took on human flesh and died sacrificially showing his love to a sinner like me so that I would learn how to sacrificially show the same love to my wife? No, I don't want to do that. I saw Jesus' presence in my life in that moment 
as king, as a threat to my right to be angry. I wanted to hang on to my sin. Even though if I had held on to my sin, it would just fester. We know that. It would wreck my marriage and ultimately would destroy my relationship with my kid. That's what would happen. In the end, I look at this passage and I'm like, man, I'm not different than Herod. I'm not that different than Herod. And I don't think that you are either. And maybe you feel that right now. Maybe, maybe the Christmas season's exposing these things in you because the pressure's mounting, the stress is increasing, the conflict is happening, and your sin's right there in front of your face. And you see it. And you see that lust, and you see that bitterness, or that anger, or that hatred, and you want to hang on to it. You don't want Jesus to come anywhere near it. You know, someone once said that sin makes you insane. It does. It makes you fight the only good God who is love, who came in humility to die, that you might be forgiven. That you could be loved by the God of the universe. So you could have the hope of peace on earth that lasts. It makes you fight him. Give up on your sin. This season, give up on your throne. You know the best thing you could do right now? Take some time to abdicate. Get off the throne. Submit to the gentle and the humble and the loving rule of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. But is Herod's response the only one that we make to Jesus? Is that the only response that is possible to give as a people to the King come? No, it's not the only response. Look at verse 3 again in our third point and the people's reaction to Jesus. So I'm just going to read a few words here towards the end of verse 3. Herod's troubled because Jesus came and all Jerusalem with him. And when the text says that all Jerusalem was troubled with Herod, a number of scholars point out that, that what's happening is that they're troubled, not just because of Herod being troubled, but because they're troubled in the same way that he's troubled. They see the advent of Jesus, and they're not really certain it's going to be a good thing for them. And I don't know that they're trying to do the same thing that Herod's doing and trying to preserve his throne the same way that Herod was, but I think they are trying to preserve something. I think they're trying to preserve the status quo. Because even though things are bad, even though Herod's not a great ruler, there's a little tiny eddy of peace, sort of. And they want to hang on to it. They're worried that when Jesus comes as king, he might disrupt that. He might affect it and change things on them in ways that they don't like. He might upset the apple cart. So as we consider our own reactions to Jesus, maybe this one lands a little closer home to you right now. Maybe you don't want to murder Jesus as an infant. I mean, I really hope you don't want to murder Jesus as an infant. If you do, please go and seek some counsel. We've got a counseling ministry that we're starting. Uh, I think you need to go see somebody. Um, but maybe you're somebody, on the other hand, that just wants to preserve the status quo. And you, you happily acknowledge maybe that Jesus has come. You know the prophecies. You like the Bible. When you go to the mall and you hear the Christmas music playing, you have this holy smugness about you, and you're like, oh, yes, they're playing our Christmas songs. You know, you really, you really enjoy them. You're like, oh, yes, that's right. Jesus is being worshipped. This is good stuff. You walk past the nativity set at the Christmas market, and you really like Jesus being one inch tall in plastic. You like to be able to put him in your pocket. You like to be able to keep out of his pocket. But God forbid that he comes to life and he rules your life. 
And he starts to change things. He starts to, starts to demonstrate that he is God and he is king and you are not. That's a little uncomfortable. I don't want to get too radical, Jesus. That's a bit too much. I prefer it if you don't interfere that much in my life, Jesus. Have you ever felt like that? I mean, if we're being honest, I think all of us have. I've felt like that. You know, D.A. Carson, he put this sort of don't upset the status quo approach to Jesus this way. And he's talking about the gospel here, but I think we can apply it just as easily to the kingship of Jesus. And he said this, he said, man, if this isn't the most convicting thing that you'll read all year, I can say that because only a couple days left of the year. I don't know what will be. He said this, he said, I would like to buy about $3 worth of gospel, please. Not too much, just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial, and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I myself don't want to love those from different races, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged, especially not in a fundraising season. I would like about $3 worth of gospel, please. Is that how we look at this king? I think if, I think if we're honest, that is how we look at this king often. Is that how we look at Jesus, the God-man who came to take our sin on, our, on his shoulders, who came to bring us eternal life, who came to reconcile us to God, who came to make all things new. Is that how we look at him? Do we do that sort of awkward hug avoidance thing with Jesus' gospel embrace? No, no, Jesus, that's a bit too much. Not, not so close. A side hug was, was going to do. That's all we need. You can only come so far. You can come into my heart, but please don't rearrange the furniture. I like it the way that it is. The people of Jerusalem, like we so often are, they're troubled by a king who could make all the difference. And they're content to live in the status quo. And they didn't want to be bothered by the grace and the goodness and the disruptive love of the king of the universe. Even though it would have been far better for them if they had embraced Jesus. So what about you? Do you follow Jesus just so long as it is convenient? Or are you willing to embrace him and to follow his rule in your life no matter what it costs you because he is incomparably good? Jesus came 2,000 years ago as an incomparable king, but Herod fought him. And the people were more interested in the status quo and they didn't receive him. But instead, incredibly, the people that we least expect to receive Jesus, pagan wise men, receive him. Look at our last point, the wise men's response in chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. I just love this text. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, it went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. 
And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. These wise men are here in this passage to show us exactly how we should respond to Jesus. They seek him out diligently. They leave their own country and the comfort of their homes. They travel out at great length and discomfort with excitement to be with Jesus. They take lavish gifts at great expense and personal cost to lay them down at Jesus' feet in worship. They arrive and they fall down before him and they worship him. King Jesus, come as a baby who was crucified, who is risen, who is now reigning, and who will one day come again. The Jesus of absolute victory and triumph, who enters into our suffering to save us out of it. They come and they worship this Jesus. Incredibly, his own people, they don't receive him. But foreign magi do. And I just want to show you something here. Because the bittersweet rejection of Jesus in the manger by his own people, at his first advent, it anticipates his worship by every nation. We know that because there's the bookends of, the, of Matthew's gospel. You know, the, the, the wise men worship who are foreigners here. But then there's a great commission when Jesus ascends and he sends us out in mission to draw all nations to come and worship Jesus as the wise men do. Look at the great commission in, in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says, after he's been raised and he's about to ascend into heaven. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you. And he's still with us, even to the end of the age. And right now we're on mission, serving King Jesus between the ages as we draw, as we seek, as we proclaim Jesus to others that all nations would worship him. But there's another set of bookends here because the gospel of Matthew and the worship of these non-Jewish people anticipates the end of the age at his second advent when all nations will worship him there. Look at Revelation 7, verses 9 to 12. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is that eternal king. The king of the end of the age who has come and he is worthy of your worship and of your submission. And as we close this morning, I want you to hear this. The word of God for you this morning from this text is that Jesus alone is king. He was king when he first came. He's king now and he'll be king when he comes again. I think that hits us a couple different ways this morning. For some of us, 
the idea of Jesus being king, it hardly affects us at all. We don't even blink. We don't blink because we're pretty confident in what we've accomplished. We don't feel any need for King Jesus right now at all. But I want to tell you something. You need to know this. Every one of your successes has a Jesus-determined expiry date. And one day, maybe when a relationship ends or the business fails or your health gives out, you'll realize that your insistence to sit on the throne that only Jesus deserves has not led you where you want it to. One day soon, you will bow to him, willingly or unwillingly. But those words, I think, Jesus alone is king, they operate a little bit differently for others of us. Because I think there's others of us in this room that right now, this is a season where we're like, man, I know I'm not the king. I mean, I just, just look at my life. Look at my sin. Look at the broken relationships. Look at the, the failing bank account. And I can't make it happen. I am not the king or the queen. For you, hear this. For you, come to Jesus. Come to this gentle king. Come to him. Take refuge in him. Be encouraged. See his grace and his humility. Run to him. Seek refuge in his love, in his forgiveness, in the way that he can wash away the shame that you feel. So whether you're living in the clouds of your own illusion or the valley of your own despair, my prayer is that you would see Jesus in this passage as the good and loving king that he is. So this season, there's no better time I think, to look and reflect just how you're responding to Jesus. How have you responded to his kingship and to his rule? Take time to reflect on that. He's coming again, and one day soon, every knee will bow. Let's all be ready for him. Please pray with me. And Father, we come before you, and we praise you. Lord, your word says that your kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Lord, we see your kindness at the first advent. Help us to receive it before your second advent, when you come to judge. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.